Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, and welcome to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. Kind of hard to believe, but it's election season again, and on June 7th, Californians have some big decisions to make both locally and statewide. And in San Francisco, voters have a huge question before them about whether or not to recall the city's top prosecutor, District Attorney Chesa Boudin. Now, this is a big deal because the DA makes a lot of big decisions about what criminal justice looks like in the city. Chesa Boudin was a public defender who grew up with parents in prison. And when he first got elected in 2019, he promised progressive reforms around prosecution and police accountability. Now he faces a recall. The folks who want him out of office say he hasn't been tough enough on crime and that the city is less safe under his leadership as DA. So in this episode, we're sharing an interview between Chesa Boudin and KQED's Marisa Lagos and Scott Schaefer. It was recorded in front of a live audience at our headquarters in San Francisco. They talk about his record, his approach to prosecuting crime, violence against Asian Americans, and so much more. So stay with us. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Chase, so we didn't really expect to begin tonight's conversation talking about your family, but we know that you had a loss in your family. Your mom, Kathy Boudin, died uh, this past uh, weekend. Um, our condolences to you. She sounds like she was 
Quite an extraordinary woman. Yeah, she uh, died on May 1st. She'd been fighting cancer for seven years. Uh, I was lucky to be at her bedside when she died with my father. There's never a good time to lose someone you love, um, someone as close as, as a mother is. And I know she desperately wanted to live long enough to see me beat this recall. So it's, it's a sad time. It's just a week before what would have been her first Mother's Day as a grandmother. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow. You had a, an interesting childhood, let's say. Uh, both of your parents were part of the Radical Weather Underground uh, group. They served time for their part in a robbery. And you were very young when that happened initially. And of course, you grew up um, having your parents incarcerated. How did that affect you? You know, I don't remember being 14 months old and, and them leaving me at the babysitter and, and never coming back. I don't remember them getting arrested or even when the judge sentenced my mother to 20 years to life and my father to 75 years to life. My first memories are waiting in lines at prison gates to go through metal detectors just to be able to give my parents a hug. And even before I understood what the law was or, or, or how the criminal justice system worked or what mass incarceration was, I noticed as a child that the lines at those prisons were almost all women and children of color. It affected me because I saw and lived firsthand the failures of this country's approach to crime and public safety. I saw that We'd built the system of mass incarceration. We led the world in locking people up and it wasn't making us safer. We weren't rehabilitating people who'd committed crimes. We weren't meaningfully supporting victims of crime. And it was bankrupting local governments, starving our communities of the resources needed to invest in education and housing and mental health or drug treatment. How did it affect the way you think about second chances and taking responsibility for what you've done? Well, I know that um, we all get second chances in life. All of us do, and we need them, and I believe in them. I also know that we have to take responsibility for the mistakes that we made. I watched my parents. My mother pled guilty to a crime that she committed, and she served a very serious sentence as a result. She expressed remorse, again, before I can remember, and consistently to me, to the public, and in every way and opportunity she had. She lived her life in a way that exemplifies redemption. While she was in prison, she did life-saving work around HIV AIDS during the height of the pandemic. She taught literacy and uh, parenting classes to other incarcerated women. I grew up watching someone who had done a terrible thing that had cost lives, that had destroyed families and, and ripped a community apart. And I watched the ways in which she reinvented herself to try and make good for all the people around her. I believe that we are all more than our worst mistake. I know, because I've seen it, that human beings have the capacity to change. And that's a critical thing we cannot forget when we do this work, any work. So a lot of the things you're talking about right now are the things you ran on, right? Um, and the climate politically, socially has changed, whiplashed even in the last few years since your election and when you ran in 2019. Um, you know, we've seen especially property crimes in San Francisco increase, and a lot of concern among the public, a lot of people that don't feel safe. What do you sort of make of this moment before we get into the details on your term, um, politically, and just you know the change between the conversations we were having when you were running, the George Floyd protest, and, and, and how we've come around since then? You know, the world has changed a lot 
since I ran for office, since I was sworn in to office. Um, and I've had a steep learning curve. I've learned a lot. I was never an elected official before. I was never a prosecutor before I was sworn in. Um, I also had never heard of Zoom before I was sworn in, right? So it's been a steep learning curve on lots of fronts and in a context in which everything about the work we do has changed. The courtrooms in which we prosecute cases have been reduced to about 10% of their pre-pandemic capacity. Um, every kind of challenge you can imagine we've confronted. Um, look, at the end of the day, what my office does and what my priority is, is making people safe in San Francisco. We want people to be safe, we want people to feel safe. And when people don't feel safe, whether it's because crime rates are rising or because there's a perception that crime rates are rising, or maybe some of both, we've got work to do. And that's why we're focused on things that are not only gonna react to changing crime trends, which is what traditional prosecutors do, but we're being proactive. That's why, for example, I look at guns and gun violence. That's the number one threat to public safety anywhere in this country. We proactively went after companies that are manufacturing ghost guns, guns that are designed to be used in crimes, to be untraceable, to be sold to anybody and everybody, including people with a criminal record. That's the kind of proactive approach that I and my office are taking to lead the way on making San Francisco the safest city in America. One of the reasons there is a perception uh, that crime is going up is a lot of these viral videos that have seen, we've seen with smash and grab, uh, you know, crimes downtown. And there was a, one, in particular that uh, I think was one of the earlier videos where this uh, guy was in a, in a Walgreens on a bicycle um, and he you know, rode out of, the, out of the drugstore with a bag full of stuff that he had taken. And that is not the kind of crime that I think you ran on cracking down on. Um, you know, it was not a violent crime, it was a property crime. And yet, when, when you got a conviction there, uh, you, your office put out a press release to let people know, and I'm wondering like, was it hard to get your head around that change in role, you know, from being a public defender, trying to get somebody like that off to putting them, you know, to, to account for what they've done? You know, the part that was hard about the transition was, was not precisely what you're asking about. The part that was hard is that as a lawyer, as a public defender or pretty much any other kind of lawyer besides a government lawyer, prosecutor, you have a ethical obligation to your client. You represent an individual, whether that individual is accused of a crime or whether it's a, a corporate client, whatever it is. And so you know that to be a zealous advocate means to fight for that one person or entity. As the district attorney of San Francisco, I represent everybody. I represent the people of the city and county of San Francisco. That includes people who have no connection to the particular crime. It includes people who have vastly divergent views about what accountability should look like. It includes the victim and the defendant. We represent everybody. So figuring out how to balance competing interests in that case, or far more serious cases is the challenge. I've always said we need to do a better job holding people accountable. I said that in 2019 as a candidate. It doesn't mean that jails and prisons should be the first response. For lots of crimes, they should be the last response. We know that they're expensive, they're inhumane, and they're actually criminogenic. They actually create crime. There's ample evidence and academic research that shows us for lower level offenses, especially, diversion programs are a far more effective way to prevent future crime while holding people accountable in ways that are meaningful. So what is success for you? Because historically, you know, prosecutors have really held up conviction rates. Um, if you know anything about the criminal justice system, that in itself can be problematic because most cases are pled out. But 
how are you measuring success? Well, conviction rates also incentivize individual prosecutors and prosecutors' offices to cut corners. And cutting corners can lead to wrongful convictions. It can lead to withholding evidence. Um, one of the things that I committed to doing in 2019, and this is the heart of your question, Marissa, I mean, we measure success in part based on following through on the commitments that we made to voters. I committed to create a model independent innocence commission, and I did that, led by a professor, a retired judge, forensic experts, and just a couple weeks ago, they identified a man who had been wrongfully convicted of a murder, served 32 years in state prison for a murder he did not commit. And a judge in San Francisco reversed that conviction. That's doing justice not only going forward, but also looking backwards. We measure success based on the extent to which we can implement policies and practices that are ethical, that are evidence-based, and that make San Francisco safer. I'm particularly interested in more effective ways to hold people accountable and increasing investment and services for victims of crime. So how, is, how should voters make that assessment, given some of the things you're talking about we may not know the answers to for years? That's true. Recidivism, for example, is usually measured in uh, increments that are longer than I've been in office. That's another part of the problem with the recall, right? It's not about good policy. It's about politics. They're not interested in a conversation about what would actually make us safer. Nobody who's supporting this recall is looking at evidence-based practices or talking to criminologists, they're promoting fear. And they're using the kinds of tragedies that occur in every jurisdiction in this country to undermine policies that are grounded in racial justice, evidence, and public safety. You know, you still have to, there, there, when, if you're a victim of crime, and we've all been victims of property crime in the past several years. Um, and before that. And before that as well. Bef you know, so, yeah, yeah, the good point. To be fair. <laughs> to be fair. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if you're a victim or your family has been victimized, you know, you want some measure of accountability. You Absolutely. want there to be some kind of punishment. You want them to pay a price. We all need that. Yes. Not just the victims. All of us as a city, as a society, we need accountability when people commit crimes. And so what do you say to those who might f feel, you know, some, may, may, the statistics may not actually bear it out, but they feel that you're soft on crime, that you're too much looking for diversion uh, or that you're looking for the root causes, but this crime happened and, and you have to deal with it. And the criminals have that message, right? I mean, that's yeah. a lot of the rhetoric is this idea that you are soft on crime and therefore people are doing things they might not have done otherwise. I've heard a few people on Twitter say that. Yeah. You know, the... Paragon of uh, civil conversation. Exactly. Well, the, but, but the reality is facts matter, right? So let me just give a few facts. I've been in office less than two and a half years. The recall started the, the week I was sworn in, but I've been in office less than two and a half years. If you look at the police department's crime dashboard, this isn't my data, this is crimes reported to the San Francisco Police Department during the time I've been in office, and you compare it to the exact same time period prior to my administration, there have been 26,000 fewer reported crimes during my tenure. 26,000 fewer crimes. That's about a 20% decline in reported property crime and about a 19% decline in reported violent crime. To be fair, the whole world locked down for totally. several months. Oh yeah, beginning. I'm not taking credit. I'm just saying if there's a perception that crime is rising, and if it is rising in certain categories, which we know it is, and to be fair, the whole world locked down and the world changed and crime trends changed, to focus on me or on my office as somehow being responsible for changes in the context of a global pandemic is not only dishonest, it's dangerous because it simplifies and dumbs down a conversation that we need to be having collectively about what is gonna make us safer. And we've done studies, outside agencies, peer-reviewed academic studies that predate my administration about diversion, for example. The California Policy Lab did a study 
over a 10 year period, predating my administration, that showed people who were in diversion programs were about 20% less likely than people prosecuted traditionally to get rearrested in the future. That's how we build safety. You mentioned there are fewer crimes being reported. There have been reports also that the SFPD uh, isn't you know, responding to calls. And there is a sense that sometimes it's not worth even calling because nothing's going to happen. Either the cops are not going to uh, do the investigation, they're not going to arrest anyone, or they're going to hand it over to you and you're going to not take it seriously, not bring it to trial or not, you know, press charges, bring charges. So what, what's your response to that dynamic? How important is it for the DA and the cops to have a good, healthy, trusting relationship? Because that doesn't seem to exist right now. No, there's a, there's a need for the police department to do their job so we can do ours. And let's take auto burglaries, uh, an issue that we know has plagued this city for at least a decade, right? 31,000 auto burglaries were reported in 2017. That was the year they hit peak. We probably had double that number because a lot weren't reported back then either. Today, police are solving about 1% of reported auto burglaries. We're either filing new criminal charges or taking some other action to hold people accountable in about 90% of the cases police bring us. But there's a problem. I don't care whether you believe in the death penalty or restorative justice, anything in the middle. We can't hold people accountable using any approach if police don't make arrests. And if you're only making arrests in 1% of reported auto burglaries, no wonder, as Marisa was saying, some people think they can get away with crimes. It has nothing to do with my policies, has nothing to do with what we're doing in the courts or not doing in the courts. If you commit an auto burglary in San Francisco, there is a 99% chance, even if it gets reported, that the police will not arrest you. Chief Scott, in front of the police commission a couple weeks ago, was asked about this, was asked about why clearance rates, the rate at which police are solving crimes that are reported, has declined by about 60% over the last 10 years. They asked him about auto burglaries and property crimes. He says most of the time, there's zero follow-up investigation. That's a problem that's way upstream. And whoever the district attorney is, today, tomorrow, 10 years from now, we can't solve that problem if police aren't figuring out how to make arrests. So what can we do then to, to lower property crimes here? I mean, a lot of what you've talked about obviously is aimed at getting at root causes, but again, takes time. The police department will say part of the problem is we don't have enough staff. Um, what do you see as the chief law enforcement officer here as a way to tackle what are truly, to your point, staggering statistics when we talk about smash and grabs, auto burglary, and increasingly shoplifting? Yeah, these have been huge problems in San Francisco for at least a decade. And so again, we need to be clear about causality. The recall folks want victims of crime and the public in general to associate these crimes with my administration. But the data shows they were far more prevalent in 2017, 18, and 19 than they are today. Still real problems that we need to solve. So here's what we do about it. First of all, a historic expansion of victim services. When people are victimized, even if police don't make an arrest, which they don't in most cases, we need to make sure that we're stepping up to help victims. When I took office, there had never been a single victim advocate focusing on property crime victims. We created a victim advocacy team focusing on property crime. That's a small step. The other thing is we need to recognize that what's driving property crime in San Francisco, regardless of the root causes for individual people arrested, shoplifting, or stealing from cars, is massive international fencing operations. We need to do a much more effective job detecting and dismantling the operations that are creating demand for stolen goods. In other words, we have a organized retail theft task force that my office has been an integral part of. 
In my first year, we participated in a multi-jurisdiction operation that seized $8 million in retail goods that had been stolen from San Francisco. Just last week, in partnership with Alcohol um, ABC, the Alcohol uh, Beverage um, Enforcement Agency of the state of California, we went after a fencing operation at a, at a retail uh, store here in San Francisco. We need to stop focusing narrowly on that person in the video that gets arrested shoplifting because police make arrests in one or 2% of those cases. We need to instead focus on breaking up the networks that are moving millions and millions of dollars of stolen goods. And that's exactly where I'm putting my energy. And to be clear, we're talking about two separate things here. I think, feel like we conflate a lot, but shoplifting, even someone who's taken a lot of stuff is different than a fencing operation or car thieves, which criminologists have described to me as a, as a, as a career you need a lot of skills and connections for. So on the second, do you feel like you're, you're talking about these investigations? Are these things that you're collaborating with the police on? Are, are, are these conversations you're having with federal officials? I mean, these seem like way bigger issues than just San Francisco that you're detailing. Absolutely, these are not problems limited to San Francisco at all. I mean, we, we see stolen goods from San Francisco move across the world. Um, we are collaborating with anybody who is willing to work with us in good faith. Absolutely, the San Francisco Police Department, absolutely um, other law enforcement agencies, Highway Patrol, uh, Sheriff's Department, and beyond. Um, you know, the problem that Scott mentioned a minute ago uh, about the relationship between the district attorney's office. You said in good faith. What does that mean? Well, what, what it means is that the police unions in San Francisco and Lincoln Mitchell had not been the examiner about the history of the POA going back to the 70s, an organization that has resisted, viciously resisted every single criminal justice reform integration of the police department. Um, policies aimed at reducing use of police force or increasing police accountability. And not just that. They've attacked every single district attorney going back at least 30 years. I was at a, a event, a house party, um, about a week ago in the Richmond district. And one of the people who happened to be at the party was a retired police officer. And they came up to me, introduced themselves, and they said that they, they started policing our streets in San Francisco well before Terrence Hallinan was elected. And they said even when they first started, they were trained, don't work too hard, don't make too many arrests, tell people it's the DA's fault. When Terrence Hallinan was the DA, we all know, Fajita Gate, they went after him, he was a defense lawyer, police didn't want to work with him, but it didn't stop there. Our vice president, Kamala Harris, was district attorney in San Francisco, and she followed through, as I have, on campaign promises made to voters that won me the election. She promised not to seek the death penalty, and when she took office, the police union didn't think that was okay, and they put tremendous pressure on her. This is after a police officer was shot and killed. Sure, and they wanted the death penalty, and she was standing by a promise she had made to the voters who had elected her. Yeah. And they attacked her viciously for the rest of her term. Then, Gavin Newsom, the mayor, appoints George Gascon to be the next district attorney. Gascon had been the chief of police in San Francisco. If anybody is gonna have a chance at working productively with the police department, it's the former chief of police. They attacked him throughout his entire tenure. This is not a new problem. This is not a problem in the district attorney's office. This is a problem with the police union being out of touch with San Francisco values, being reactionary, being retrograde, being racist, and being unwilling to accept reforms that promote trust in law enforcement. There is this problem between your office and the police in terms of trust and cooperation. What and role- And the mayor, we should And say. the mayor, yes, and the mayor as well. And I'm wondering if you feel you have gone the extra length to improve that relationship. What did you do after you got elected 
to make that relationship better. Because I assume while there, you can make the argument that it's important to have an independent DA, you also need to have a decent working, trusting relationship. Absolutely, and we do. Chief Scott and I text, we talk on the phone, um, we have a very, very robust back and forth relationship. We don't robust. always, yeah, we don't, meaning it's vibrant. We don't always agree, but we have very good channels of communication. And when we disagree, we talk about it respectfully, and we understand that we have different jobs, we need to work together, but we also have to stay in our lanes. And he makes decisions I don't agree with, but I respect that he's got a job to do and a department to run, and he says the same thing about me. Um, I know that just like I want his department's clearance rates to go up, he wants them to go up. I know that, and he knows that, like me, we both want the ways in which my office holds people accountable to be more effective. These are things that we share a common cause around. I want to talk about the internal workings of your office. Uh, this is something that some of the prosecutors who have left your office and are supporting the recall have talked a lot about. Uh, one statistic, at least 40% of your attorneys have left since you got there. Some of them you asked to leave, some retired, some, were, some quit. Um, and I think it's fair, you're a new administration, you're gonna bring in new blood, but we've also seen a lot of public defenders come over to that office. And I guess my first question is, do you feel that they have the experience to do the job, which is different than being a public defender, right? And, and what kind of systems have you put in place to ensure that folks have the training and expertise, especially if you know, supervising attorneys are also pretty new to this line of work? Well, a couple of things. You know, um, the most expensive defense attorneys in the country tend to be retired prosecutors. And there's a reason why people with unlimited resources hire a former prosecutor when they need a defense lawyer. It's a similar reason to why some of the people I've recruited to be prosecutors are former defense lawyers. You need to know how the other side thinks. You need to anticipate what they're gonna do. There's nothing unusual. Is that why you hired them? Yeah, some of them, some of them. And if you wanna look at the record that they have, some of our best trial lawyers in these last two years have been former defense attorneys. The other thing that's important to remember is the recall wants you to focus on a handful of people I hired who are former defense attorneys. What they're not talking about is the more than a dozen people we've hired who are former prosecutors. Many of them former prosecutors from within the San Francisco District Attorney's Office. People who left under prior administrations, saw the work that I was doing, saw the leadership of our office team and wanted to come back and be part of that team. And here's the other thing that's important. All across the state, all across the country, there's a phenomenon known as the Great Resignation. I just saw a news report on TV this morning that said 47 million people across this country quit their job in 2021. The most on record in any year in American history. They're trying to focus on our office for political reasons. Every single district attorney in the state of California right now is having a hard time retaining their staff. When I talk to other elected DAs, some of them, 20, 30% of their attorney positions are vacant. They can't hire people. We have people literally banging down our doors, interviewing as fast as we can to replace vacancies. I am really proud of the team I've built, including former prosecutors and former defense attorneys. One of the issues that has understandably uh, really uh, upset the city generally, but the Asian American community in particular, are some of the uh, vicious anti-Asian hate crimes. And I wanna ask you about one in particular because of the way you handled that there were two men involved. It was, this was uh, a 68-year-old um, person in the Bayview who was collecting cans to turn in for recycling. February 2020 on Osceola Lane. Exactly. 
And uh, somebody, there were two guys, one beat him up, uh, made fun of him, while the other one shot a video of him. I gotta f- correct your facts. Please. Yeah. Uh, because these are important. Yeah. yeah. But I yeah. know the case, as yeah. you can tell. Yeah, yeah, um, One of them, you had a stick, was another recycler, had a stick and threatened him with the stick, swung it at him, and then stole his cans. That's what we call an assault for the stick and a robbery for using force or fear to take the cans. And we filed those charges against him once police made arrest. The other one had no connection to the robber. He was there, like a lot of people were watching and making fun of the victim and videoing it. Not a good thing. Not a good thing. Offensive, horrific, racist, disrespectful behavior. Outrageous, not criminal. It is not a crime to make a video of somebody else committing a crime. It's not a crime to be racist. As offensive as it is, as distasteful, as much as we as a city condemn and reject that kind of behavior, for me to file a criminal case ethically, we have to have a crime that corresponds to the action of the person we're prosecuting. And making a video of someone else being a victim of crime is not a crime. But there was a charge, right? He, he, was, he was not charged. He was not charged. He was, was not diversion, charged. right? What we did was we, first of all, the police arrested him and we looked at the evidence and we said there's no cognizable charge from this behavior. If he had been complicit in the robbery, if he'd been uh, participating in the robbery, if he had used force against the victim, absolutely we would have been able to file criminal charges. But simply being disrespectful, racist, rude, and making a video is not a crime. What did the victim want? The victim wanted us not to move forward with charges. He was very clear, we worked with a community uh, partner, the victim was a Toysanese speaker, and so we worked with uh, interpreters through community organizations that were helping the victim with housing and with the other uh, immediate aftermath of being a victim of a violent crime. He said unequivocally that he did not want us to move forward and prosecute, that he didn't want to testify, and he particularly said with regard to the younger man who had made the video, that he understood that this young man had made a mistake, that he was young, that young people need education, they need to learn, and that he wanted an apology. We tried to follow his lead, and we referred this young man to a diversion program, a restorative justice program, through which he was able to articulate his apology, to come to terms with the ways in which his behavior, whether or not a crime was alleged against him, was absolutely unacceptable and shattered a sense of safety and security, not only for the victim, but for so many of our Asian American brothers, sisters, and siblings in this city. That was before the pandemic. A month later, President Trump started scapegoating Chinese Americans, started using racist, inflammatory rhetoric, empowering white supremacists across the country. In Atlanta, there was a a mass shooting. In San Francisco, we've seen an increase in not just hate crimes, but hate speech. We know the cause of that is white supremacy. We know the cause of that is Donald Trump empowering racism and xenophobia and scapegoating. And we know that the Chinese American community in San Francisco in particular has suffered with dignity and with pride and with perseverance, racism and oppression and exclusion as long as there've been Chinese Americans in this city. We are proud of the history of Chinese American perseverance. We're proud of our Chinatown, the oldest in America. We're proud of being the city in the 48 United States, continental United States with the biggest Asian American population. And we are proud of the work I've done as district attorney and my office has done to expand services specifically for Asian American crime victims. When I started, Scott, we had one Chinese speaking victim advocate in the entire office. One. I appointed the first ever Chinese American head of victim services. We increased the number of Chinese speaking staff in our office by well over 500%. 
you must hear from folks who are victims. They see elders being assaulted or you know beaten, with all, and they want retribution. They want hate crime charges. Um, what do you say to folks? Because those are not easy charges to, to get convictions on, right? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is, look, whether it's a hate crime or just a, any old crime, a robbery, an assault, a murder, we need to do a better job keeping our community safe. We need our Asian elders to feel safe doing their errands, going to the grocery store, taking public transportation. And I hear from people who are scared. Are and scared angry. And angry. Yeah, they, want, they want to be protected. They want to know that they can go out and about, live their lives without being targeted, especially without being targeted because of their skin color or their language or their immigration status. And so I made it a priority back then to do everything I could to stand up and stand with the Chinese community. We did merchant walks, but we said, this is not a Chinese virus the way Trump is saying. This, doesn't, this isn't only Chinese businesses or Chinese communities that are impacted. Come shop in Chinese businesses. Continue to spend money. We did a public safety announcement that we asked media outlets to broadcast informing the community about hate crimes and about the scapegoating that was happening before the city had even shut down. And more than that, when it comes to holding people accountable, I am really proud of my record when it comes to crimes against Asian Americans. I have personally gone to the hospital to visit Asian American victims of violent crime. I've personally gone to court and argued to detain people who've committed violent crimes because I don't think it's safe for some of them to be released from custody. And we have a dedicated hate crime specialist in our office who doesn't only handle hate crimes, every single hate crime that comes into the office, but also is a point of contact with other district attorney offices around the Bay Area. And through that partnership and that uh, liaison, we've been able to file hate crimes in cases that were presented to us as police, by police, as a simple assault. Because we've made the connection, we've seen a pattern of behavior, we've cooperated and collaborated with other law enforcement agencies, and we've been able to do the job the community wants. And look, the leadership in Chinatown, the leadership in the Chinese and Asian American community in San Francisco, they see the work we're doing. You look at who's opposing this recall in the Asian American community, the Chinese leadership. I am proud to stand with every current and former recently elected uh, Chinese American. Uh, former president of the Board of Supervisors, Norman Yee, uh, Mabel Tang, Phil Ting, uh, Gordon Marr, Eric Marr, uh, Sandra Lee Fuhr, the Rose Pack Democratic Club. Uh, we could go on and on. The, the leadership of the Chinese community sees uh, Judge, uh, Judge Tang, Julie Tang, folks who see the work that we're doing every day, who understand the challenges that we face, are saying to voters, reject this recall. Vote no on Proposition H. All right, you brought up pretrial detention, and, and this is an interesting one because I first met you because of bail reform, right? You uh, might have been on this stage in a different iteration I of this. I was on. It was a phone call, if I recall <laughs> properly. But uh, but the first time we talked was around, you know, this issue of bail reform, money bail reform, and the idea that it's not fair to hold people in in jail pretrial if, just because they don't have the money to get out. And a lot's changed since then, both because of state policy, but also because of the pandemic and the fact that a lot of people, um, they're just, you know, there was a push within the larger court system to not hold people. But I'm curious, like you also talk a lot about how judges overrule your, your lawyers a lot and you were asking for pre-trial detention. And I guess I'm wondering if you feel like anything that you pushed is backfiring now in the cases you see. Well, let's be really clear for folks who aren't as familiar as you are about what money bail is, how it works, and how it doesn't work. Money bail is a, is a system 
really unique to the United States and the Philippines, where we have for-profit companies that make the decision about who is in jail pending trial and who gets out. And it's a system that's based on wealth. Um, it's, a, it, it's really problematic for two reasons. The first one is that it undermines equal protection under law because it results in poor people be, who are presumed innocent being held in jail simply because of their poverty. It also undermines public safety. And as district attorney, one of the things that's unacceptable to me is that under a money bail system, someone who's really dangerous can be back on the streets within hours simply because they have enough money to pay a bail bondsman. We've replaced a wealth-based system with a risk-based system. If we believe somebody poses a public safety risk, and I campaigned on this, if we believe somebody is too dangerous, even though they're presumed innocent and awaiting trial, to be released, we're gonna ask the court to detain them. Now the decision is always Which up is to the judge. Which is arguably more serious than a bail setting, right? Because you're asking for preventative detention, a Absolutely, it is. But the problem with money bail is that what prosecutors have done throughout this country and in San Francisco until very recently, is they have used money bail as a proxy for detention without any of the procedural protections that defendants are guaranteed, undermining, as the California Supreme Court recently found, undermining both due process and equal protection. It's also problematic because judges and prosecutors are guessing at how much money somebody has. They're guessing, they're, they're saying, we don't want you to get out of jail, so we're gonna set bail at a million dollars. But some people have a million dollars or they've got a rich uncle. So how do you arrive at the decision to ask for pretrial detention or not? Is there a specific system? You, I know we've had risk assessments in San Francisco. Those are not perfect. Right. And they've always relied on the judgment of attorneys and judges to look at them as well. So we're looking at a, a few different uh, factors. And, and I want to be clear, my lawyers make this decision on a very, very short timeline. We usually have less than 48 hours to make a decision after an arrest, both about what charges to file and about whether or not to seek someone's detention. We do it based on the risk assessment algorithm that the court uses. Um, it's called the Arnold tool, the PSA. Um, we also do it based on the individual's criminal history. And we also do it based on the facts of the case. So if we have someone, for example, who is accused of a very serious violent crime, we're likely to ask for their detention regardless of what the risk assessment says, regardless of whether they have a criminal history. Someone commits an attempted murder and we have strong, compelling evidence, we don't want them to get out and go finish the job. We want them to be held until we can prove our case. Mm. And we ask judges to do that. Sometimes they agree, sometimes they disagree. We respect the checks and balances of the system. It's how our founders of this country designed every level of government. No one person or agency is supposed to be all powerful. And that's as it should be. How often do you overrule your attorney's decisions on charging or these types of pretrial decisions? Exceedingly rarely. Um, we've filed about 10,000 plus criminal cases since I took office. It would be impossible for me to read every police report or even know the facts of every case. So, so the idea that I'm going to be micromanaging the decisions of every lawyer in the office, it's just not realistic. One of, one of the prosecutors who left, sure. you know, went public, said that you intervened in some of these decisions without consulting them and they, they were more ideological and political than based on risk. What, what's your response to that? That's a lie. It's really simple. Um, there are some folks who won't let facts get in the way of their ambition. And it's disappointing to have what needs to be a nuanced, complicated conversation about public safety distracted by people's individual career ambitions. Hmm. Um, in that particular case, not only did I have a lengthy conversation with the individual prosecutor, on a weekend, because I work seven days a week, 
sometimes to my wife's chagrin. Um, but we also had lots of conversations with the supervisor of that prosecutor and with the supervisor of the supervisor of that prosecutor. We have a chain of command. We have structures in place so that if I'm being asked to make a decision in a case, I get briefed on it by lawyers who understand it. And if I have questions, I talk with the lawyer who's closest to the facts. And I did that in this case. And the lawyer asked to pursue a particular course that I was uncomfortable with. Can you say what it was? Sure. Um, the lawyer believed that someone who was severely mentally ill should go to prison for the rest of their life. And the family of the victim understood the mental illness at issue and overwhelmingly wanted this person to go to a locked state hospital, not state prison. What was the crime? Murder. And the lawyer said that they believed, notwithstanding the opinions of three separate expert witnesses, two of them appointed by the court, not hired by the defense, that this person legally was so mentally ill that they had to go to a state hospital, not prison. Notwithstanding those three expert opinions, this particular prosecutor really wanted to send this young mentally ill man to prison for life. I was uncomfortable with it, but I deferred to her judgment as the lawyer prosecuting the case, and I let her make the case to the jury. And the jury disagreed with her. They wouldn't agree as a jury to send this young man to prison to find that he was sane at the time of his crime. And after the jury came back and said, you know, we're deadlocked, half of us don't think he was sane, I said, we've had enough. The family wants him to go to a mental hospital. Six of the jurors want him to go to the mental hospital. And you've had your best shot at it. The jury didn't agree. They didn't buy what you were selling. And we're going to respect the family's wishes. You bring up what the victim's family wanted. Um, there are clearly other cases that have been brought up in this recall where the victims are not happy with the charges that you filed or the way that you've handled them. How much weight do you give in your office, your lawyers, to crime victims and survivors and what they want? And, and what's the appropriate balance there? Because to your point, you are not a lawyer for them. You are a lawyer for the people. One of the most important and often difficult parts of my job is meeting with victims. And I've met with so many families who have dealt with a homicide or survivors of sexual assault. Um, and victims of less serious crimes too. It's, it's a critical part of my job. Every, everywhere I go in the community, I talk to people who've been victims of property crime. And as difficult as those conversations are, it's something that I always keep with me. Those conversations, the pain, the suffering, and the challenges that we as a system, not just my office, but collectively across this country have, with finding meaningful ways to make people who've been harmed whole, are very real, deep challenges. And there are some victims who want the death penalty after they've had their car broken into, right? It's not normal, but there's some of them who want that. And there's some who are victims of horrific family sexual violence who don't want prosecution at all. And in either of those cases, as much as we respect their wishes and where they're coming from, we are not going to follow what they're asking for. I am not gonna seek the death penalty after property crimes are committed, or ever, because I don't believe in the death penalty. I'm proud that I got the last person on death row out of San Francisco off of death row. I'm proud that I ended the death penalty for San Francisco. I'm also not going to simply dismiss a family sexual violence case because a victim says I don't wanna cooperate, or a domestic violence victim says I don't wanna cooperate. So it is a balancing act, and it's a tough one. You, met, you talked about a balance, trying to strike a balance. And you know, one of the things that you promised is to hold police accountable in cases of excessive use of force. And I believe you prosecuted five uh, cases. There was a guilty plea by one police officer. What, 
impact, that may have been the right thing to do, but what impact do you think that's had on your relationship with the department? Well, there's no question that the police union demands and expects impunity for its members. We've seen that across the country. We've seen the reaction, not only to me, but to any prosecutor who tries to hold police accountable. Um, you know, it's telling that in all of San Francisco history, as far as we're aware, there's never been, until my administration, a jury trial against an on-duty police officer for excessive force of any kind, not just gun violence, any kind of violence. Does anybody in this audience, does anybody watching really think that until 2020, there was never a single instance where a San Francisco police officer used unlawful excessive force? The, Nobody thinks that. Yeah. The jury acquitted in that case, though, didn't they? They did in that case, after four hours of difficult deliberation. They did. Some people get convicted of crimes, some people get acquitted of crimes. It's a process that we respect. The jury worked tremendously hard, and the entire police department pulled out all the stops to help ensure that that police officer was not convicted of a crime. We respect the outcome of cases, win or lose, but we cannot lose because we don't try. And in San Francisco history, that's been the, that's been the case. That's been what we've seen throughout this city's history, throughout this country's history, is a refusal by elected law enforcement officials, district attorneys, to enforce laws equally, to hold police accountable when they commit crimes. Can I ask though, you put three prosecutors on that case. I think most homicide cases have one. I mean, is that proportional? It's proportional to the resources that we were up against in that case. No criminal defendant, probably in the history of San Francisco, has ever had as much support as that police officer defendant did. They've never had the police, they had police officers coming in to testify for him. People who hadn't given us their statements, who weren't cooperating with us. We had the police department blow up a long-standing agreement, use lies and misinformation and spin to justify walking away from an agreement so that they could generate press to taint the credibility of that process. That never happens in a criminal case. You, you never think the see. chief tried to taint the credibility of I think of the that department case? did. I think the department did. I think the police union absolutely did. And I think they put the chief in a very, very difficult position. What do you think of the media coverage you've gotten? Sorry, what was the question? <laughs> I, I, no, I couldn't hear you. <laughs> I thought uh, you were stunned. No, I heard you. The media is a fourth branch of government. Um, you know, we've got the judiciary, we've got the legislature, we've got the executive. I'm part of the executive branch. The media really is a fourth branch. We need, collectively, for democracy to function, we need to be able to rely on the media to educate people about what's happening and to elevate the level of conversation we have about difficult, complex civic issues. I think across the country, there's been a real deficit um, when it comes to our understanding of com complex issues like public safety, criminal justice, police accountability in the last couple of years. And I, I think that's a trend we see in part because of the way that social media is impacting news coverage, right? The ways in which uh, journalists are being evaluated um, based on how many clicks they get, how many new subscriptions their articles generate. And in many ways that leads to a lowest common denominator form of journalism, people racing to get a tweet out, to break a story. Very, very little accountability as we saw with President Trump for blatant misinformation being spread, sometimes through mainstream media sources. Um, if we're gonna, look, the criminal justice system has never worked in this country. I inherited a system that was entirely dysfunctional. Two thirds of people getting out of prison statewide will be rearrested within a couple of years. And in San Francisco, before I was elected, 
more than half of people released pretrial would be rearrested while their case was pending. That's the system I inherited. On day one, I, I had 5,000 open criminal cases. 20% of them were more than two years old. So if we're gonna fix that system, we need journalism to play a part in elevating the conversation. I think there's been far too much focus on Twitter dunks, on viral sound bites or videos. Let's take one example. You mentioned a video of someone stealing from Walgreens. That video went literally viral. International. Millions okay. of people around the world saw that video. It generated hundreds of news stories. And the tweet said, hashtag no consequences at Chesa Boudin. It was a journalist who put that tweet out. Here's what's problematic about that kind of journalism. So for there to be consequences in any criminal case, the first step is there has to be an arrest. In fact, the National Institute for Justice has published lots of research that shows the single biggest deterrent in criminal cases is not the severity of punishment, but is certainty of arrest. And we all watched as the guy went right past a security guard who didn't try to arrest him or detain him. And it took weeks before an arrest was made. Once an arrest was made, he spent 16 months in jail. He suffered a felony conviction. To say no consequences, to suggest that that crime or any crime is the responsibility of one elected official is really dishonest and dumbed down a conversation that we need to be having at a high level. What role do you think race plays, you know, in those videos and how they're responded to and, you know, all these things, you know, the way the media responds to it? As long as this country has been around, race has played, and look, James Baldwin wrote brilliantly about the ways in which white consciousness is caught up in the relationship to black America um, decades ago. We know that the criminal justice system is racist. We know that policing in this country is racist. And we know that racism has deep, deep roots, written into our constitution, right? We, we, we don't need to look any further than the three-fifths clause. We don't need to look any further than slavery to know that racism has been and continues to be a very serious problem. And the criminal justice system for decades has served to amplify institutional racism that starts in maybe less visible or less pernicious ways in public housing and education and healthcare and employment. And when people don't have access to jobs or don't have access to, to, to mortgages to buy a home or get addicted and can't get treatment and they get arrested, those kinds of videos and the tough on crime police union rhetoric that we're seeing all across the country right now tells people that they'll be safer if only we exact vengeance and retribution on people who don't look like us. It is dangerous, it's dishonest, it's racist, and it undermines public safety. One thing we do have a history of in this state especially is, you know, using individual cases to often drive policy or conversations around like Willie criminal Horton justice. Or? Willie Horton's a great example. That was not in California, but yeah. Um, Polly Class and three strikes. But so one of the cases here has been a case of a man, Troy McAllister, who um, had been sitting in jail for five years awaiting trial on charges of holding somebody up with a, a, a toy fake, gun. Yeah, fake gun, yeah. Um, and when you came in, your office uh, made a plea deal. He got out on time served um, and went on to be rearrested throughout the year. Your office referred him to parole. Daily City got a report that he had stolen a car right before um, 
New Year's Eve, uh, had the address that he was at in his name, didn't arrest him, but, and then he ends up killing two women with this car. Setting aside, I, I, I wanna make clear that there's a lot of other criminal justice partners who touched this case between when your plea deal was made and when you know, this horrific accident occurred, or crime, whatever you wanna call it, yeah, collision. <laughs> um, but why that kind of plea deal? And, and I know it's like hard, like I think litigating individual cases is not always useful, but this is one we hear a lot. And this is an attack we hear in LA against George Gascon, which is, you know, you could have gone for 25 years to life. You could have gone for X, Y, or Z. Can you just talk about the thinking that goes into that um, and, and what sort of factors you're looking at? That case, was a devastating tragedy. I met with the mother of Hanako Abe. We reached out to the family of Elizabeth Platt. The pain that those families experienced, the, the, the hole in their social fabric will never be filled. And of course, I lay awake at night thinking, what could we have done differently? We don't have a crystal ball. We can't predict the future conduct of every single one of the thousands and thousands of people that come through San Francisco's Hall of Justice every year. And we also can't put everybody in prison for life. The logic that says this could have been prevented if only he had been in prison for longer is a logic that leads us to mass incarceration. It's a logic that leads us to the death penalty. It's a logic that leads us to bankrupting our governments because we're only investing in building jails and prisons, not investing in building schools and hospitals. We know where that path leads. It does not lead to safety. It does not lead to the kind of vibrant community that I want my son to grow up in. And we know how the class family, the family for which the three strikes law at issue in this case, that I'll come back to the Troy McAllister case, feel about the three strikes law that was passed in their sister's name. Some of their family, but yeah. Her sisters. Yeah, her sisters. Her I sisters spoke on are, this yesterday. Yeah. And they are outspoken critics of the three strikes law that's named after their sister. They are supporters of my efforts to stop relying on what are called status enhancements. Now, the maximum punishment for a robbery under California law is five years. And Troy McAllister served a five-year sentence. Now, you're right that we could have been creative and found ways to keep him in prison for longer. And if we had a crystal ball, we might've done that. But we have to make decisions in cases based on the information available. He had, believe it or not, a really good record in county jail. Well, I wanted to ask that because five years in county is not necessarily access to rehabilitation or a lot of the programs that you believe helps people change. So in a case like that, like, are you thinking about, are you considering that? Absolutely. What they've done? In Absolutely. We had letters of recommendation from case managers. We had certificates of completion from programs that he'd done. He was in a trusted job. It, look, I'm not here to defend him. I'm prosecuting him yep. right now. But we make decisions one case at a time with the information we have available. We are out of time, but we want to give you a chance to make your closing argument to uh, the jury, to uh, the voters. Well, I'll tell you what, um, my brother's a sixth grade science teacher in the East Bay, and uh, he invites me to speak to his classroom uh, pretty much every year, and that is a way more intimidating audience than any San Francisco jury has ever been. Um, so I, I really appreciate being in a room full of adults. Um, but the, um, you know, the, the thing about it is this, we measure criminal justice outcomes in time frames, time horizons, that are far longer than I've been in office. We have serious challenges when it comes to public safety, and the recall does not want you to think about how to fix them. Politics are getting in the way 
of good policy. Everybody you trust opposes the recall. The Democratic Party, the Green Party, the ACLU, the Sierra Club, the Rose Pack Democratic Club, Bernal Heights Democratic Club, the Labor Council, the nurses, the in-home healthcare workers, every single elected or formerly elected official who has taken a position opposes this recall. The teachers, now who supports the recall? Billionaire Republicans are bankrolling it and the San Francisco Republican Party has endorsed it. Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton are tweeting about why I need to be recalled and let's be really clear. These are the people who are responsible for eroding women's right to make choices about their own body. These are the people responsible for undermining voting rights, for undermining gun control laws. These are the people who pack the Supreme Court. They do not reflect San Francisco values. They do not reflect policies that are grounded in evidence that will make us safer. They don't care about victims' rights. They use victims as pieces of evidence to secure criminal convictions and lengthy sentences. And if they're not helpful for that, they don't use them. We have got to do better. We've got to be smarter. We've got to follow the lead of folks who are paying attention on the ground to the work that we're doing every day. Vote no on Proposition H on June 7th. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was KQED's Marisa Lagos and Scott Schaefer speaking with San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin. The primary election takes place on Tuesday, June 7th. May 23rd is the last day to register to vote, and every registered voter should be getting a ballot in the mail. In-person voting begins on Monday, May 9th. KQED's got an elections FAQ for you on our website with really helpful information about in-person voting and where you drop off your ballot. Check out our show notes for a link to that. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara. Thanks so much for listening. Peace. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.